Greetings, brethren. It is a privilege to be here, and thank you to the leadership of the church for trusting me with your pulpit. It has been a joy just worshiping with you. Uh, it has actually reminded me of our church because, you know, when we sing, we, we sing at the top of our lungs, and that is what I experienced singing here. Uh, people saying like they really believe these truths, and I'm sure you really do. Our text this morning is from 1 John 1, 5 to 10. And as you turn there, let me give you <clears throat> the setting and context of our passage. By the time John wrote this letter, he was an old man, most probably in his 80s, the last living apostle. He wrote this letter to the believers who were residing in Asia Minor, around Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey, where he ministered for many years. These believers were facing many trials and doubts, many things that caused one to be sorrowful, to despair and to be discouraged. There were many trials from without, caused by the society they lived in, also their spiritual home, their harbor of rest, the church was being attacked from within as well. As you read this letter, you see that there were church splits in the congregations, and those who broke away were trying to lure those left into strange doctrines. There were also personal challenges. They were facing, fighting their own sinful flesh, fighting worldly desires. And John calls them to not love the world or the things in the world. But far worse than that, the sweetness of fellowship was gone too. They lost the beauty and joy of Christian fellowship. Their communion with God and with each other was hindered. And we will see exactly why that was the case this morning. And John, seeing these issues that were threatening the very life and faith of these congregations, he decided to write to them. In verse 4, if you look at your Bibles, he says, and we are writing these things so that your joy or our joy may be complete. He says this is the intended effect of why he is writing to them. In other words, John is saying if they listen and take heed to what he's going to say to them in this letter, they will find that it will increase their joy. They will experience a deep and remaining joy. Where does this joy come from? Well, if you look at verse 3, John says it comes only through fellowship with God, through communion with him, through doing life with him, walking with him. It comes only through a real and practical sharing of life with God and with the people of God. We will only experience this joy as we enjoy true fellowship with God and one another. This is what John 
desired for his flock. But there were certain issues that were hindering this necessary fellowship. John is going to address those issues in the text we are considering. And it is my prayer that we too can receive instruction for our own Christian lives and that we may take caution not to fall into the same snares that hinder true fellowship or real Christianity. Having said that, let us bow our heads and pray to God to help us grasp what we are about to look at in the text today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to sing praises to your glory and honor. We pray now as we listen to your word that you might help us worship you with an undistracted heart, Lord. You know how our minds are quick to wander, wander to present worries, wander to our upcoming week or thoughts about other things. Help us, Lord, to put those thoughts away and to focus on you and your glory. Remove away from us all distractions that might hinder us from hearing your voice, from hearing your sanctifying word. In the words of that wonderful hymn, speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us and shape and fashion us in your likeness. We ask you, Lord, to speak and renew our minds and to help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. And we pray for all this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. First John chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you. This message John wants to deliver to them, he wants them to know that they did not discover it or make it up. They heard it, they received it. He says we've received it from him, that is from Jesus Christ. The final and ultimate source of all revelation and information about God. John says this message is about to deliver to them is important because it comes from God, not man. John is stressing this because there were people who were defected from the faith and they were going around and tweeting and spreading all sorts of messages that were not true. And these people were causing schisms in the life of the church and affecting the fellowship between brethren and their God. This is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you. John says we are delivering it to you as we received it. And so, please, as, as we go through this message, I'll keep on saying, John says, but keep in mind John's words that he's only a reporter, not the author of this message. I don't know Greek, but I looked up the Greek word translated, proclaimed here in our English Bibles, and it's the word anangelo in Greek, which literally means to announce, to disclose, to report. And John says, I'm only a messenger, an announcer, that's all. 
My mission is to make it known to you, to publish, to diffuse it, to pass it on to you for your benefit. And so the, the weightiness of this message, the seriousness of this message lies behind the fact that it is God who has chosen to reveal this about himself. What is this message? John says, this is the message you have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. John says, if, if you, brethren, if you are to have fellowship with God, you must understand what makes it possible. The most fundamental and principal thing to understand first is who God is and what is he like. We must know God. This is the starting point. And this is at the heart of all human problems too. We do not know God. But we assume we do. We assume people know God. And this shows up usually in our evangelism. We go out and we ask people, do you believe in God? That's already an assumption that they have the same concept of God that we have in our own minds. One of my favorite speeches is a speech that was given by former U.S. President John F. Kennedy in 1963. It's such a, a powerful and quotable address, but there's a part that always makes me cringe when I'm listening to it. He says, our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. And man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable. And I can imagine the Apostle John listening to that and responding, this is the problem with us, man. We put ourselves in the center. We look inward for solutions. But the proper starting place is God himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching through this passage, said, Surely the very first and basic thing for Christian people is that they should start with God. That half of our troubles arise in the Christian life because we do not start at this point. We tend to assume that we know the truth about God. We tend to assume that everything is all right in our ideas about God, that many, if not most, of our problems okay, because we constantly start not with God, but with ourselves. So many people assume that they believe in God and that therefore they need not to be concerned about examining their belief, end quote. And John says the reason you are met with all these troubles is because you first of all missed something about God. That is, God is light. That is to say, God is holy. Amen. He's holy. He's perfect in righteousness. John says this is the living God, Jesus Christ, revealed to us. This is the God, Jesus, who is the light of the world unveiled. A God who in him there is no darkness. There is no darkness of sin or ignorance or error. There is no untruthfulness in him. There is no 
wickedness in him. There is no evil in God. Light and darkness, they do not overlap in him. God is not a mixed nature of good and evil. God is unlike some of the Greek and Roman gods and even African deities that were known for being tricksters and deceivers. No, John says the living God, Yahweh, his light, he cannot lie, he cannot cheat, he cannot mislead. There is no licentiousness or unchastity in him. He is not spiteful or malignant or an imposter. He practices no deceit. There is no imperfection or defect in God. He is complete. Amen. This is the first thing. This is the revelation John says you must come to terms with if we are to walk with this God. We must understand that he is holy. And God in his holiness cannot condone or have fellowship with anything that is contrary to his nature. All that is unholy cannot abide with God, but must be cast out of his presence. That's what happened to Satan and his league of angels. The moment they became unholy, they were cast out of the very presence of God. They were cut from fellowship with God because God demands holiness. And God expects his children as well. Those he has redeemed by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to be holy as he is holy. That is First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 16. In Matthew 5, verse 14 to verse 16, Matthew records for us that Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Ephesians 5, verse 8 to verse 12, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. God wants his sons and his daughters to walk properly, to live in a way that pleases him, to live a life that is consistent with their new nature and profession. True believers, true children of God, are those who live a life of abandoning sin, throwing away sin, rejecting, getting rid of it, discarding of sin, disposing of sin. God has set us apart for a relationship with him. He has set us apart to display his character in all spheres of life. The first hindrance then is when we do not live our lives in light of this reality about God. In light of this reality about his character. Paul says, believers in Ephesians 4.22 are those who lay aside the old self. They forsake the deeds of darkness. Having said that, I'm not saying Christians are sinless. The Bible does not teach that. Christians do fall into sin. We see that in the scriptures. In fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, even though the objective, the ambition, the resolve of a child of God should be holiness, the sad and heartbreaking fact is that the possibility of committing sin is ever present in the Christian life. Believers do fall prey into the seductive powers of sin and Satan. None of us are exempt from the temptations that arise from the enemy of our soul, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. The redeemed people of God are still sinners. Amen. The second thing then that interferes with fellowship with God and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is when there is a believer who denies this fact. A believer who portrays their life as if all is well when that is not the case. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. They profess one thing and then do another. What they say and how they portray themselves is really inconsistent with the life they are living. You know, I was, I was reading an, an article posted by Relevant magazine years ago, and it cited a, a, a study published in um, a, a journal, Religion, Brain and Behavior, which sought to understand why young people chose to become atheists or agnostics. And although the researchers expected to find that most people became atheists because they grew up uh, outside of a religious setting, what they found was that many who called themselves atheists and agnostic became so, at least in part, as a result of observing their parents to be insincere, hypocritical, and unfaithful. That is not to say there aren't plenty of cases in which someone had chosen to be, forsake the faith to be an atheist in spite of growing up in a, in, a, in a devout home with parents who really loved the Lord and were sincere. However, it does seem that where hypocrisy did exist, it was a factor that contributed to their decision to reject their parents' faith. John says, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We are not living out the truth. Our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, our conduct, our daily life betrays our claim. Our life is not expressing the truth. And here's a good question for us to Examine ourselves. Are we practicing the truths that we claim to believe? Are we living out these truths that we see in the scriptures? Here's another danger. Look at verse 8. If we say we have not sinned, 
This is a refusal to acknowledge sinfulness. It's deception. John says we deceive ourselves, we lead ourselves astray, we are spiritual fakes. And we make him a liar. Such a claim is an attack against God who says, surely there is not a man righteous on earth who does good and never sins. That is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. And his word is not in us. John says it, it reveals something about the person making such a claim. Usually that he or she cares more about portraying a godly image of themselves than being a real Christian. He is faking Christianity. Let me read for you an excerpt from a book by Dan Schaefer that I'm currently reading. I think this will help illustrate how we also, in subtle ways, can fall into faking Christianity. Listen to this. Ned sits down next to his wife, Tanya, in the church. In the church, his family has called home for many years. He smiles, he waves, he jokes, he engages in friendly, in friendly banter with everyone around him. He is a fixture in the church, having been involved in leadership for many years. Ned is well known, well liked. People admire him for his spiritual life. People continually stop and they greet him. Frank One of the men he has discipled waves to him across the church. Ned smiles and he waves back. He spent several years sharing with Frank how to live the Christian life. Suddenly, he feels a pang of guilt. Just this morning, Ned blew up at Tanya, cursing and yelling at her. Unfortunately, this was not an abnormality in his life. It was the norm. Ned has not read his Bible in months. His prayer life is haphazard and infrequent, and his temper can be titanic. Yet, he has learned how to fake it in church. In church, he prays glowing prayers, and he knows all the important spiritual phrases. His church background has provided him a strong base of biblical knowledge that has helped even to thrust him into a teaching role. His leadership abilities were discovered and put to good use as well. All those years in the church, growing up, learning how to talk, how to smile in the church and be someone else, someone you wish you were, have paid off. He is considered spiritually mature. He is recognized as a spiritual leader. Ned likes the person he is at church, or at least the person he portrays. He wishes he were the Ned everyone admires. Sometimes he even feels like he is that Ned. But then the real Ned comes out when he's safely away from church. Church is his whole life, his place of importance, the place he has made his mark in life. So he guards his secret carefully. End quote. How many of us are willing to admit that to some extent we are like Ned. Can you see a Ned in you? 
I can see one in me. Brethren, let's be cautious of this desire to appear godly, to appear as a mature Christian. I pray that God may help us to drop this thing of wanting people to think of us as more spiritually mature or well-off than we actually are. Let's make an honest assessment of our spiritual condition. Is, is John describing us here? This person who says, I have no sin. Are we the type of people that pretend as if all is well? Are we faking Christianity? You're struggling in your walk, or you're struggling in your marriage, or with your children, but you, you can't say it. You can't even go to one of your brothers and sisters and say, you know, I'm struggling in this area. Why? Because you have an image to protect. An idol you have carved for yourself. And this idol, this, this Ned, or this Ntlaganipo, it does not struggle. It does not sin. So I can't come out and say, brother, I'm really struggling in this area. Help me. Faking the Christian life. John says we are only ultimately fooling ourselves. We are leading ourselves astray. And it is, it is my prayer that we may not fall into faking. Faking doing well because it will hinder our fellowship with God. It will hinder our fellowship with others. It will stunt our growth. If I've I have this image of me that I always put up, this spiritual facade that I'm, I'm doing well. Tlaganipo is this spiritually mature person. You know, he does not struggle with sin. Then my brother, Pastor Joe, can no longer minister to me. Right? Because all he sees is this person who does not struggle. So even if he's reading scripture, he, he cannot speak to me. He cannot even send me a verse to say, he cannot even encourage me. Because he's not seeing me, he's seeing this idol that I've carved up and I put in front of everyone. How can we ensure that we do not fall into fake Christianity? Church, let us value honesty. For without it, there can be no genuine Christian life. May we be brave enough to be transparent brave enough to lose our spiritual reputation and walk in humility with our God. Brave enough to allow people to know the real us. Brave enough to pull off the mask we put on and let people see us. Let people see you. The you, your husband, the you, your wife, your children, your colleagues, the you yourself lives with. I use the word brave because it will require courage. Being honest is hard. It's uncomfortable to be honest. It's difficult, it's unpleasant, and it's somewhat unnatural. I think parents will agree that one of the first things children learn is to be dishonest. It comes just natural to us.
but honesty is necessary. It is necessary if Christianity is to be real. We can't hide if we want genuine fellowship with God and with others. You know, that is something our church has learned as well through the Village Mercy Ministry. Because we have Bible studies there and you have guys who just say, you know, I, I'm struggling, I, I, I doubt the faith. I doubt these truths. Oh, I want to quit. I want to go back. They are so honest in those Bible studies, in the prayer requests. And so as a result of just interacting with the guys from the ministry, even the prayer requests have changed in the church. People are more honest. People have learned to be more gracious. And it has even strengthened some relationships friendships within the church. And that's what honesty does. Even though it seems like it's relationship-threatening, but it is the virtue that strengthens relationships even within the congregation. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, if it is our ambition and resolve to be holy unto the Lord, if we have this ambition to live our lives for the glory of God, if we are striving to obey our loving Father's instruction for our lives, as we, as we live our lives in light of his character, in light of his holiness, as we make it our aim to hate what God hates and to love what God loves, as we endeavor to live out the truth, to avoid hiding behind spiritual reputation idols and instead practice honest Christianity, as believers, we will have a beautiful, continuous, unhindered, joyful intimacy. John says, if we walk in the light, if, if things are all right in our relationship with God, we will have fellowship with one another. But if we walk in the light, says the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. I was struggling to see the connection between these two phrases, walking in the light and the blood of Jesus, his son cleansing us from all sin. But as I thought about it, one of the implications of God's description as light is that he exposes. What does light do? It provides illumination in dark places. It gives us sight and vision because it makes us see the object around us. This is what light does. It exposes and reveals the properties of the objects it collides with. You can see me here right now because there are lights. Just imagine what would happen if the sun were to burn out or disappear. In only eight minutes, the whole world would be plunged into utter darkness. Darkness worse than that of the night. 
but because we have the sun, we can see. One of the main functions of light is visibility. And so one of the things that happened when you walk with God, who is light, when as a child you commune and have fellowship with him, of necessity, you will be convicted of sin. God will expose you little by little through various ways and means. God will expose everything that is unworthy of a child of God. God will shine the light on everything that is sinful in us, even those things that are blind to, or to, to our own eyes. God will bring those things to the surface. I know there is a man who, who lived about 3,000 years ago whose great-grandmother was none other than Ruth herself. This man loved God. He walked with God. He fellowshiped with God. And because God was his father and God loved him, God exposed his sins whenever he got his feet dirty. You know, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, because of time, we'll not open that passage, but at this point in his life, the man had committed some grievous sins. And God, out of love, he sent the prophet Nathan to confront him about his work. And it says there in 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that's what he said to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, "The, the Lord has also put away your sin. Do you see what happened here? God, who is light, made him aware of his sins. And as a father, he led him to confession, to repentance, and forgave him his trespasses. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin because we'll see our need for cleansing as we walk with God. God will expose our sins. He will expose our need of a savior. Look at verse 9. I'll close with this one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, brethren, God is not looking for perfectionists. God takes no delight in spiritual fakes and hypocrites who pretend as if they have no sin. God wants us to know that he is holy and he cannot abide with sin. He hates it. He wants his people to forsake it, to pursue a godly and a holy life. We we cannot lower that standard. God desires that for us. He desires that we should be holy. But when we do fall into sin, God wants us to confess it to acknowledge our sinfulness, to be willing to even publicly admit our wrongs, to not give excuses for them or deny them, but to call them what God calls them. God seeks such to walk with him. 
men and women who are humble and sincere, who are honest and transparent, who when they've fallen, they will not hide from God, they will not hide from brethren, but they will beat their hand upon their chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen. This is what real Christianity is. John says he is faithful and just. God is dependable. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is righteous. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He keeps his word. Whoever comes to him and does not try to conceal their sin but confesses them, he will not cast out but he will forgive them and he will cleanse them through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the God we worship. And proper fellowship with him. Fellowship that leads to abiding joy starts by receiving this message. And so I call the church to real Christianity. Let us be a people who, who value honest in the church. Let us be careful of not building this, this, building this spiritual carving for ourselves, these spiritual idols, portraying ourselves as holy because we think, okay, if I'm in the church, I should be this type of a person. Let us be careful of these idols of godliness that we can carve for ourselves. And if you are not a Christian, you are outside and you are, Maybe you're visiting. This is Christianity. What, what, what you see John talking about here, this is Christianity. This holy God who cannot lie, he promises that a day is coming when he will hold everyone accountable for how they have lived their lives. It's a fearful day of judgment. But this God also promises forgiveness through Christ. He says in Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are not a believer and you are here this morning, I exhort you to come to Christ. Come to Jesus and be saved. He's willing to save. His hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Come to him and confess your sins. Cry out to him and he will save. And be a real Christian. Proper fellowship with God starts by us receiving this message from First John. All who receive, say amen. amen. Let us pray. Lord, help us. Help us, O oh Lord, to be real Christians. Help us to desire godliness not merely to be thought of as godly by those who see us, 
but to be godly because we love you and we respect you, Lord. Help us not to pretend, Lord, not to put on a facade of spirituality while we continue to live a carnal life. Lord, help your church. Help us to return to real Christianity. We pray for this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.